Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. It's that time of year again. Elixir 1.15 is about to release. And what has released is release candidate number zero. So it's a good time to get into that release candidate, test out maybe your code bases, get an idea if things are going to be breaking or not, and see what those deprecations are, get get rid of all those little warnings and such. So we're going to go through some of the changes that's coming up. But some general notes first about Elixir 1.15. This release is going to require OTP 24 and later. So if you haven't gotten to OTP 24, you're probably going to want to do that first. But Elixir 1.15 is a smaller release. This is that little kind of release cycles, the, the tick and the talk cycle, right? This is the tick. It's a small release with focused improvements on compilation and boot times. There's also some features and integrations with Erlang, such as like Logger, and new features such as log rotation and maybe log compaction out of the box, which is all pretty nice. But there's some other more interesting things. What else is in there, Cade? Yeah, so there's some interesting date time functions that have been added. And I feel like every release, we're just getting closer and closer to the actual built-in date time library being really great and you not needing to include other date time libraries. So we've got date time before and date time after now, which I don't need to explain what those do. They're just going to compare date times for you. But then there's also support for precision in UTC now. So I don't know if your guys' code base has this, but my code base has Daytime.utc now piped into truncate second everywhere, like everywhere. <laughs> and so it's, it looks like what you're going to be able to do is pass in second to datetime.utc now and just skip that piping to truncate. So some nice little quality of life improvements there. I do that all the time. I never get my brain straight on this. I'm often working with Ecto. And so it kind of depends on like what your types are, what your schemas are on your Ecto. It 100% depends on if you went UTC date time, then you need seconds. But if you did the UC or whatever, allow microseconds, then you're fine. So yeah. So like I felt like that type on my schemas just avoided more of these issues, but I still run into it a bunch. So anyway, yeah, I'm very happy to see that one. Hey, another big one that's coming up is support for multi-letter uppercase only, uh, only uppercase sigils. So it could be really interesting. I don't gather that there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening in the kernel to get right off the bat, but there are some proposals that could be kind of interesting. Both of these are by Void Tech Mock, great guy, friend of the show. First proposal is to add a URI sigil. That would be so cool because, yeah, like it's a little bit verbose to just get a simple URI in there and parse it and yada, yada. But I looked at his code sample where he's saying like where this matters and what it looks like. And I was like, oh, this looks actually really nice. It's just like you you write out the URL as a string, but you have the sigil URI on the front and it turns it into a parsed URI struct. Right. That's really slick. Yeah, it just reads a whole lot nicer. Like you're, you, don't, you don't have to do the URI.parse anymore, right? Okay, so that's that's one. That could be pretty cool. It, again, just these are proposals. They might not happen. And the other proposal is adding a UTC sigil, kind of like spelling out what the, you know, tilde U stands for, because we already have that, which stands for like a, a new date time in the UTC calendar. So that could be interesting just to be a little bit more verbose, but a little bit more clear on what that means. Uh, who knows? Again, these are proposals and they may not make it. But those multi-letter uppercase sigils could really open it up for a lot of libraries to 
to do a lot of cool things. I'm already imagining a, sil- a, a sigil HTML, a sigil live view or a sigil like it could be really cool. A, a sigil zig could be a lot of cool stuff in there. Next up, separately, there's a couple of new convenience functions on map set, keyword, and map. So we already have a function called split with, but it's only on enum, the enum module right now. And it works with all those different types, map set, keyword, and map. Well, (laughs) sometimes, and I've done this, I know I'm working with a map, and so I just instinctively type out map dot my function, right? And I forget, ah, it's not on this one, it's on the enum one. So there's a couple of convenience functions now. I don't reckon they do anything differently, but it's just convenience functions so that way you can get to it from the map module or the keyword module or the, or the map set module. And split with is pretty interesting. Just allows you to put in that function to determine how to split up the, you know, in this case, the keys and the values from each other. So you get two groups. Pretty cool. Just a little nicety working with all these other modules. One of the other improvements in this Elixir 1.15 release candidate we mentioned previously was around Logger, that this is trying to complete that whole migration to using the Erlang Logger. And one of those things is that it will actually change how we config our Logger in our root config for our projects. And this introduces a default formatter and default handler configuration for the Logger. So the changes for how to migrate our projects to this are really simple, and they're documented well in the release notes. Along with this, there's a hard deprecation on logger.warn slash two. So that's being deprecated in favor of logger.warning. Instead of warn, it's converting to the more explicit warning. So it should be a very easy find replace in your project, but that'll be one deprecation to look out for. Another really exciting change. If you ever use the formatter with the dash dash check formatted to make sure in CI that your code base has been properly formatted before merging into main or master, and you've gotten that error that says there were unformatted changes, goodbye. (laughs) Well, now it's actually going to show you a diff of what it's talking about. So that should be an awesome improvement there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, now you don't have to guess in CI. <laughs> so you pull it down, you run it locally, you're like, oh, yep, I did miss that file, fix it. I mean, you need to do it locally anyway. It's, it's, it's going to be cool, though, to just see it right there in line. We're going to have a link to all this in the show notes where it's a link to the release notes for this release and where it has a nice breakout and description of some of these changes. I just want to quote this one that's talking about the faster boot times. It says, Erlang OTP 26 allows us to start applications concurrently and cache the code path lookups, decreasing the cost of booting applications. When we're talking about applications here, we're talking about Erlang OTP applications within your project that's running. Continues, the combination of Elixir 1.15 and Erlang OTP 26 should reduce the boot time of applications, such as when starting IEX-S mix or running a single test with mixed test, cutting it down from 5% to 30%. And they go through and explain more about all these different changes and how these performance improvements are reached. That alone sounds really interesting just for being able to, when you get those larger projects and you say mix test and you're like, you're just waiting for it to boot up before it actually starts running the tests. So help reduce some of that too. Yeah, there's a ton in here, but the last one I'll mention is a little subtle change to DBG. If you've ever used it while you're in IEX running your server, you might have noticed that it actually pauses and puts you into that pry mode. I don't know about you guys. I, you know, I haven't taken the time to learn pry. I don't 
really use it. I'm still just a traditional logger and I love the <laughs> DBG logs. They, they give you the line number, they give you nice syntax coloring. They give you, you know, you can put it at the end of a pipe and it can infer things about the pipe. There's so many niceties, but I just never use it because then it puts me into pry mode. Now you have to opt in to pry. So by default, you can just scatter those DBGs all over the place, push them into prod if you want, you know, <laughs> just put them all over the place. And you actually have to put in a option to, to make it pry. So I like that personally. Yeah, I think I get surprised every time. Uh, or, I'm, or I'm on my live view or something and I'm like, why isn't it going? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something's waiting for me to confirm whether to pry. And moving on to another topic, there's a Elixir library called XG Boost or EXG Boost. Uh, this library was released and this is actually something that's in the machine learning space. It's described as a gradient boosted decision tree library. And what this is actually doing is providing Elixir bindings to the XGBoost C API that's using NIFs or native implemented functions. So if you're sitting there thinking, you know, what does that mean? Gradient boosted stuff. When this library was released and announced on Twitter, I asked like, what does this mean for those of us who don't actually understand and what I liked is this nice little summarized version, which says XGBoost can be used for both classification and regression tasks. And one of the canonical examples is predicting the likelihood of loan default. And with this project also includes a live book where you can check out and see how this works and, and see it in use. I also saw confirmation that this is an important part of the machine learning library community that we need in Elixir. So that's exciting. Yeah, next up, there's an Elixir EU lightning talk that we thought was a real fun way to visualize how supervisor behaviors look, the difference between one for one, one for all, rest for one, etc. So it's actually a video of him running Doom and controlling the monsters with these supervisor behaviors. And he'll shoot one, and depending on which behavior he's using, he'll show if the, the rest die or if, or if it just immediately <laughs> responds. It's a... It's probably the funnest way I've seen how supervisors work. So definitely check that out. It's really short. Yeah, that's great. All right, last up, Jose Philim has resumed some uh, live coding and chatting on Twitch. You know, if you're available, you might want to subscribe to his Twitch channel. He's doing a round of those again. He also announces them on Twitter, I believe. He doesn't really save the sessions, so you can't really watch them afterwards. So this is definitely live. But we got some links to his uh, Twitch account. So if you wanted to catch how Josie thinks and works through problems, those are always great sessions. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Mitch Hanberg. Mitch, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, this is going to be fun because I've seen you talking about something online where you're talking about like this new Elixir tools effort and this LSP that you've been building and how it's an LSP for Credo. And I'm like, wait, what? What does that mean? So I'm really excited to talk to you about that because previously we talked to you in episode 92 
back in March of last year, 2022, about Temple, which is a, a templating alternative for Phoenix. So I get the sense that you're very much into this whole developer experience idea. And I think the LSP may play into that. I'm excited to talk all about that. But before we do that, I want to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah. So my name is uh, Mitchell Hanberg. Go by Mitch most often, but I write at Mitchell everywhere. So everyone calls me Mitchell. I'm like, I should figure this out. But I live in Indianapolis, Indiana uh, with my wife, two dogs, two cats. We got like a, a zoo here. And for the last year and some change, I think I, st- I started on Valentine's Day last year. So I was fresh last time we talked, but I'm working at Simple Bet and we do in-game, real-time micro markets for sports betting. So we use lots of OTP, Elixir, Phoenix, Surface, RabbitMQ, tons of good stuff. And Very nice. I've also seen you go by Mach. Who's Mach? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it was funny little like nickname in college. And then my brother's name's Scott. And then he joined the same college I joined and like had some overlapping friends. So then they called us Mach and Scotch. And just... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. So Mitch, I would love to follow up on our discussion previously with Temple and just kind of hear an update on that. But maybe we'll save that for the end of the show. People can stay tuned for that and what you're doing there and how that's gone. But first, let's jump in and talk about this Elixir Tools. So you've created a GitHub organization called Elixir Tools. So that sounds very like official. Maybe you can tell us like what is the goal of this group and who's involved with it and just kind of give us some background. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the making it a an org seems like it's having the effect that I wanted. I wanted it to seem like official and not official, but you know, like legit moving forward. But it's currently just me. I have actually a couple of contributors on the various projects, which is blew me away, honestly, like normally on open source efforts, like someone might like message you on Slack and say like, oh, like I want to help. And then you kind of get ghosted. But I've had several people do that. And then, you know, I kind of like, okay, like, you know, I'll help them out. And then boom, bada being PRs everywhere. So that's been really awesome in the community. But it all kind of started with I'm very big into, you know, developer tools, Tmux, NeoVim, CLI stuff, and I use NeoVim. And as that editor has progressed, they started having built-in, like, language server protocol support. So we all probably use Elixir LS. That's the language server that's most prominent or, like, really the only one right now. And in NeoVim, it was kind of just like there was a generic single kind of, like, global config plugin that everything used and it really just gave you the basics to get it going but lots of servers have many like extra features that you need to like build into the client so like client meaning the editor so for like vs code they have a first party vs code extension so the maintainers of that kind of cook it all in there but for neo them it was kind of left lacking the plugin was originally just called elixir.envim but i kind of changed it up just to you know, and in the NeoVim space, there are their like naming schemes that kind of follow this. So like there's Rust tools, NVim, Haskell tools, Flutter tools, kind of just cribbed that naming scheme for this. So 
that's what kind of brought me into kind of this, you know, dev tooling space because the language server had a couple cool kind of, they call them commands that you could do. Like there's from pipe and to pipe. So you just, you know, can smash a couple keys and it'll transform like a pipe chain into a not pipe chain or, you know, vice versa. Then there's expand macro and you can run tests through the, through the editor, through the LSP. So having its own specific plugin was kind of the way to get all of that cooked into the editor as well as I used to have tons of problems with like my project ran on Elixir version, blah, blah. And then the editor or the plugin was compiled with blah, blah. And it was global. Just wasn't working for me personally. So I baked in, it'll just download it, install it. You can install any tag you want, any branch. So like I was, I was running my own fork of Elixir, Elixir LS for a little bit and it will compile and cache it for the version of your project. So it's like if you open two different projects with two different versions of Elixir and OTP, it'll prompt you and say, like, do you want to install it? And then it'll clone it, compile it, cache it. So I haven't ever dug deep into developer tooling. I feel like I have a vague understanding of what a language server is, but maybe you could enlighten me and our listener, like, what what even is a language server? We're really coming completely full circle here because I've spoken with Mark in 2019 on a different podcast about the Elixir <laughs> language server. So yep. <laughs> it really is coming, coming all the way around. But so yeah, so the, the language server protocol is a JSON RPC protocol designed by Microsoft that was kind of extracted out of Visual Studio code. You know, it's a protocol, so it's not like actual code, but it is just the RPC protocol for an editor to, or really just doesn't have to even be an editor. It's like a client to communicate with a server and all of the message messages, like the remote procedure calls are oriented towards code intelligence and stuff like that. And it kind of solved the original thing was, oh, you have N editors and M languages. Like there needs to be a plugin for every language for every editor. And so this kind of centralizes that aspect. Elixir LS can power any editor it technically can power just anything really because like you can open it up on a on a TCP port and talk to it that way. So it's the protocol for the editor to communicate and the server to communicate either way for like code completions, go to definition, like hover, documentation, like all that jazz. The way I imagine this in my brain is I've got the language server, which has no UI, right? It is, I understand this language. I understand the Elixir language and I understand requests about the Elixir language. Like what is the documentation for this module? Or you typed this module and hit a dot and maybe it knows I have a way of querying for the list of functions and types. I assume it also understands the context of the project you're in. Like when you say go to this module, which you've defined in your own project, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mark, spot on there. And I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm very pedantic. I'll say the knowing the context of your project, that's really dependent on the server. It could be much more basic, like not really care about it. It wouldn't be a very good server. But in the case of Elixir LS, it boots up your project, like knows all your modules, know all your dependencies modules, and yes, knows how to query for completions and all that kind of stuff. So then you have this separate effort, which is like the NeoVim part or the Visual Studio Code part, which just says, I know how to talk to a language server, right? And that it's like, I know how to hook up the editor to a language server. Yes. Yeah, so it's 
there are layers as as it's, you know everything's like an onion or an ogre or exactly. something like that. You you, um, you keep on crying <laughs> as you peel it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the editor has the built-in like client support, and then the actual plugin. So like the VS Code plugin or my NeoVim plugin. I also have a VS Code plugin too, but we'll we'll get into that probably a little bit later. That's the thing that says I want to start this tool, and we'll be able to boot it up for you in the context of of your app, and then it boots it up, and then it says, "Okay, I've got a server running. I will send requests to it for this type of file, which would be Elixir file, Surface, Heeks. Those are those are about them all, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, and it can get complex too. The editor has understandings of how like to highlight something, understand what file it's looking at, that kind of stuff. And it can get complex because as we know, like there's embedded Elixir, there's Heeks, which is HTML aware embedded Elixir. There's, you know, you could have all sorts of embedded, 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 and it goes all <laughs> the way down, right? And you and you have to tell your, your editor like what, how to understand that kind of stuff. And it's different from editor to editor. For example, NeoVim recently, by uh, recently, I mean, I think it's in the last like year or two, started supporting TreeSitter as kind of a streaming way of understanding text. And then Visual Studio Code has its own thing. I don't know what it's called, but they have their own thing. And traditionally, a lot of editors use just like regex or something like that. So there's all sorts of ways to like parse the text that you're looking at and then knowing like what you're looking at, uh, what file type you're looking at. So like, it's easy to just say, the simplest way is just like, look at the file extension dot H-E-E-X. Okay, I know what I'm looking at. But it, again, it gets more complex because if you're looking at E-E-X, it could be on anything. It could be dot J-S dot E-E-X. And that implies it's embedded Elixir on a JavaScript file, which who in the world would do that. But usually it's just HTML. It could be Elixir, you know, on top of that could be ex.eex. It could be so many things. So there's a lot of lot of glue work. It can even be Elixir file. You've got a module doc. Well, you've got you've got doc tests in there. Also, at least in NeoVim, you're highlighting the whole file as Elixir, and then you highlight the module doc as Markdown. And then inside there, you can have Elixir code snippets. So then it highlights those <laughs> as Elixir. And then you could potentially get, you know, intelligence in there. <laughs> and then you just, you know, technically can keep going and going and going. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit excited about these multi-letter sigils, by the way. We talked about it last week in the news. But it, it'll be a topic, I think. But these multi-letter sigils can be like tilde SQL. And that can just be a convention to say that the text inside of here is SQL. So highlighted as SQL and that, that, that kind of stuff. The other day, I actually, I mean, I didn't publish or anything because it's just kind of silly, but it's like the, you know how sigils can have modifiers on the end? Oh, right. Really, you can add whatever you want. The problem is that the S and capital S sigils explicitly disallow any modifiers. Like there are no modifiers that can modify a string sigil, but you can very easily make your own. And I made one where... It's just the exact same thing, except it allows modifiers, but it doesn't do anything with them. So you could you could like make, you know, I think I called it, I don't even remember, what it, G, I think. I can't remember. I just found a letter that wasn't used. <laughs> you made a G string, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then the modifiers just could be SQL or HTML. And then I have this in the capabilities in my Elixir plugin where it could just say, oh, for a G sigil, 
look at those modifiers and then highlight that string as whatever you typed in there. So it could be JSON, Zig, whatever you want. Cool. How interesting. Yeah. Mm, I smell opportunity. Let's jump in and start talking about this first project under the Elixir tools. That's the one I saw you being talked about first. It's, I think, the foundation for the more discussion that we can have next. But is this Gen LSP? So Gen underscore LSP. So what what is Gen LSP? Because on the GitHub, it's described as a behavior for creating language servers. So it sounds like an abstraction for an abstraction. So like, <laughs> help, help me understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and I'll say what they call it, a shameless plug. I gave a talk, kind of about how I made this at Codebeam America 2022. So I'm sure they'll put the link in there. You can check that out. Yeah, so Gen LSP, it's following the naming scheme of, you know, Gen Server, Gen Statum as a state machine built-in process. And what it does is it's an abstraction over, from a user perspective, all the unimportant parts of a language server. And then also gives you, it's a behavior, so you get all these callbacks for handling the different type of events that can kind of come in. So the stuff it takes care of for you is all of the transport mechanism, the parsing of the JSON messages, and it also provides like a test SDK, kind of like a Phoenix like contest or like live view test sort of thing. So you get nice when you're trying to make your own language server, you can, you know, say, oh, I'm going to send a, because then in the tests you have to, you know, have a fake client, like, because I don't want to boot up my editor. I just want to like, you know, send a request. So it has like a little fake client, send a message, you say assert result, assert error. But so it abstracts away all of that. You don't have to worry about that. It's not in your code. That's kind of what I just noticed. Like when I go source diving in lots of other language server implementations, including Elixir LS is that there is like Elixir LS wants to give you code intelligence, but so much of the code base is just built around the actual transport mechanisms and all this stuff. And like, imagine if you're just making, you know, your app at work, you're doing a Phoenix app. Like, imagine if you just like terminology from like NPM type stuff, but like you wrote mix Phoenix eject and it it unloaded all of the Phoenix source code into your own app, right? Like you wouldn't care. You don't care about any of that. You don't want to, you want to be focusing on your thing. So what kind of was the genesis of wanting to write this? Because I wanted a nice, clean abstraction for in a hundred lines of code. That's kind of how the credo thing kind of got started that we'll talk about is like outside of, you know, needing like a, a cache and stuff like that. It's really just like 100, 150 lines of code and you get an entire language server that can do diagnostics and hover and all this kind of stuff. There's been chatter online whether uh, I needed to build it this way, but you know, I, I needed to do conference talk driven development. So it's <laughs> built with Proclib, which is the underlying OTP part of the standard library that like gen server and gen statum are all built with. So that's just really how to make, you know, OTP compliant processes that aren't just a gen server. So if you need different like message passing semantics, like a gen server will consume all messages. It won't selective receive them. So I don't really do any of that, but I'm not going to change the code right now. So that's how it's built. But it gives you basically, like you say, you use gen LSP. And then, you know, you have a classic start link, init callback, and then you basically can just write like a handle request callback, and then it gets past a fully hydrated and quote unquote type checked struct 
filled with like that whole payload, like it's structs all the way down. And I wrote another project called Schematic that is kind of like Norm, if you've heard of Norm, but I read the LSP protocol JSON schema file. And then I, it's not really a project, but there's just another code base that does the code gen for gen LSP for the whole protocol stuff. So it's just like structs and type specs, just kind of like all the way down. And it uses this to do runtime, not really parsing, but, you know, like data structure validation and hydrating into these structs. So as you, you know, are typing, as you pattern match on the struct type, you can say, you know, and this is part of why I wanted all that is the language server will give you completions on struct field names and give you the type signatures and all that kind of stuff. So more or less, that's kind of what it is. And then it's got standard IO and a TCP adapter. So you kind of have to wire that part up a little bit yourself in your own implementation. But you basically say like mix my mix task dash dash standard IO or dash dash port 9000 and it'll start it start it up for you like that. So so this was breaking my brain because I thought what we were talking <laughs> about here was we had Elixir LS, but now you're talking about an abstraction over building another server. What 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 kind of servers are you making? What am I missing here? Are you rebuilding Elixir LS or like <laughs> alternative language servers or? Yep. So Elixir LS is the current, you know, like widely used implementation of an Elixir language server, like generically, not lowercase, not like Elixir LS. So we'll we'll slowly get there, but I just this is the whole genesis of Elixir tools in general. But like I see like the developer tools that like Rust programmers have and and probably some other languages, and they're just fast, expansive, feature rich. And I as like the editor technology has been improving, I feel like the the pacing on some of the Elixir dev tooling has not followed that same pace and. I kind of just want to be at the forefront and pushing it forward and starting my whole new org and kind of starting from first principles is kind of the way that my hypothesis is going to, you know, allow hyperspeed, you know, development progress. So, you know, started from first principles, right? And I'm like, well, I don't I don't want to build this. I don't want to figure out how to do my Elixir language server and the language server like by itself at the same time. So, well... I want to write a language server. Well, I got to write a framework to write language servers first. So, <laughs> And you got to have a marketing website about all this first, too. I, I've got the domain. I've got the domain. It's not up yet. I think we're describing yak shaving. <laughs> and a newsletter. You need a... You need to buffer some Twitter posts if we're still doing that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Gen LSP is just an abstraction on making any kind of language server. So you can make Zettelcast in Obsidian style language server that lets you do note taking and like linking and stuff. You can you can make a, a Ruby language server using this. I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to get very good, you know, intelligence on Ruby code through Elixir, but you could do it if you wanted to. Okay. So this is like a foundational piece. You're kind of your hypothesis is like this could be better if we started with a with a stronger foundation. And so you started with the creating the the org, the website, the Twitter, just kidding. You, you started with creating <laughs> <laughs> creating this foundational like abstraction over building what you hope is the right way or the more productive way to build these servers. I think we're in a good spot then to start talking about your first implementation to test out that theory and say, can I build something that does what I want 
So the first one that I'm aware of that you created is the Credo language server. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So the Credo language server was a good jumping point, I thought. So Credo is not like integrated into Elixir LS in any way. Whereas like, I'm not super hip on all the the Rust things, but I think they have something called like Clippy. It's like kind of like a Credo. And then that like Rust Analyzer will do that for you. And we just didn't really have any of that. And the way that you would run Credo in your editor was more the way things have just been done for a long time in at least the Vim, NeoVim, Emacs style, where when you, you know, save your file, the editor will will literally run like it'll pipe the contents of your file, your buffer, into mix credo suggest. And then it'll output the warnings or we'll we'll use the term diagnostics because that's kind of like the the term all these things use. That will emit the diagnostics in some kind of parsable format. So generally it's like fly check or it might output like a, some kind of JSON thing. And then that's emitted into standard out. And then the editor gets that and figures out, oh, I need line numbers and the the message that was there. And then it'll hydrate that and then communicate that into the editor and however however it tends to do that. In Vim, it generally it'll put like a, some virtual text at the end of the line that has the error. It'll do some squiggles. Um, it'll put a thing in the sidebar with like an E, a red E for there's an error on this line. That's generally slow. It's got to boot up a whole beam. I know I know we're all kind of aware that the beam is not the fastest thing to start, especially when it's starting like your whole app and all this stuff. And it only does it, which is the way Credo works, it only would do it on that file. But one of the neat things about Credo that's actually pretty different from other linters is that it does consistency checking. So you'll say, well, there's two ways to do this. I'm not going to prescribe which way you should do it, but you should do it the same everywhere. So it's like, oh, you might be doing, I can't remember if this is an exact exact one, but it's like, it's like, oh, you might be putting underscores in your in your large integer literals everywhere else, but in this file you didn't. So you should do it. Or you did it in this file, but you didn't do it anywhere else. So you should not do it here. And with a classic way of running Credo in your editor, it wouldn't do that. So that's what made making a Credo language server kind of an interesting starting off point is because when your app boots, it can start the Credo language server and then it can just run the diagnostics. It can run Credo on your whole project and it can get all of that stuff. So before, and it's one of the most useful two Credo rules are the ones that tell you if you have an IO inspect or a debug statement somewhere. So you might accidentally commit one of those if you like, let's say you quit your editor, you wrote it in file A, you quit your editor, you started it again, you open file B, but like it wouldn't say there's any errors because it only ran it on file B. So Credo will run it on your whole project. So then it'll say each editor is different, but I can say diagnostics all and it pops up a big window with fuzzy searching of all the diagnostics in the whole project and it'll show you all those places. And now that it runs everywhere, it'll run the consistency checks for the whole project. And since the beam is already started, it will be a little bit faster because like the beam's slower to start and Credo itself is at least on bigger projects can take between two seconds. And I was just at a gig city elixir and my friend Greg was talking about their new styler project and where they were running Credo on their 
code base at Frame.io, and they said it literally would take like minutes, like 10 minutes to run Credo on their whole code base. So like Credo is not super fast by itself, but if you're able to shrink down that time and it's doing it asynchronously in your editor and you're not running it right before you commit, it just streamlines your workflow just like infinitely in my opinion. So that was the gen. I keep saying Genesis, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, <laughs> beginnings in in this conversation. So that's what kind of like sparked the creation of it. I originally was going to pull request it directly into Credo, but that had some other caveats. And in the end, I realized it would be because it's so new. It would be better to have it be its own thing, and I can iterate on it way faster and people can technically I have all the editor stuff set so it won't start if you don't have credo installed so you don't have to worry about that but technically if like you really like credo and you want to have it running you could like have it running even though you don't have it in your project technically that's a annoyance I have on some of my editor setup is that first of all I'm using null ls okay we're, we're about to dive deep into neovim land here so <laughs> all five of you out there Pay close attention. No, there are hundred, there are thousands of us for sure. <laughs> <laughs> in NeoVim land, there's a generic language server thing that hooks into a lot of like linters and other kind of tool stuff. You know, one shot action things too. Credo is one of those tools, and Null LS, Null as in like N U L L, like it that doesn't exist kind of language server, right? It's also serving as this bridge. Now, you're not using this in your tools. You've got your own like integration. I've been using NullLS. It's it's quite dumb about things. It always starts based on like the file type. And so at the top of all my modules, if I'm in that project, don't have Credo installed, like I just get errors all, all over the place. And I just, I need it. I need it to, to shush. <laughs> I was using NullLS for a little bit right before I was like finishing up the create a language server. And I noticed like, yeah, I have like little notification style things in the bottom right of my NeoVim. And it would be like, especially if you did a, like I would do like, I grep a code base and then I would like, you know, load the quick fix with that. And then I'd say, okay, for each item in the quick fix, I want to run this search and replace thing. So it would be quickly editing and saving like 22 buffers and then it would also be trying to start null else credo and all those and it would go like bing and then be like ah, it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist <laughs> yeah. and then it, it takes 22 minutes now for all those to disappear <laughs> yeah so you're saying now there's an abstraction over the abstraction of language server clients <laughs> no 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 <laughs> uh no so null, null ls is basically like so for tools that don't have language servers and are just like standard like like credo it's like it makes its own LSP interface around standard tools. Okay, that makes more sense. That makes more sense. But it's still a Band-Aid, a very uh, poorly applied Band-Aid, in my opinion. <laughs> I want to make sure I have a clear idea of what the Credo language server is setting out to do. Because you talked about, you know, some of that aspect is being able to return, you know, maybe have the Credo language server running so you don't have the, the slow startup time. And then feeding back the results of where are the errors. So I've got like file and line number. And so it can give it some information about like wh what to put the squiggle, you know, where to do that. Is there anything else like, you know, with Credo, you can use comments to say, ignore this part. And, and then you're like, well, what do, what do I have to type here? Do you have any code completion on stuff like that? Yeah. So originally I was going to do code completion on like the ignore comments, but then I had a better idea, or maybe one of those contributors I was talking about uh, had 
one of those ideas. I can't really remember. But so now for any diagno- any credo error warning that you have, there are the LSP protocol defines these things called code actions. So if you're using VS Code, anytime you see a little light bulb, that's like a code action. So you click in and it gives you some things you can do, like if you're writing TypeScript or whatever, it might say like extract function from variable or something like that with Credo language server. For all of them, you can click that and you can say like ignore and then that specific warning. So like if you have a cyclomatic complexity thing and you're like, I can't be bothered to, you know, fix this, you can quickly ignore it right there. Mm, That's gold right there. Yep. For some of the other ones, so like the, oh, you must have a module doc warning currently. So this is the only like more specific one we have. And this was, I believe his name's Wesley. He contributed this. You, when you click the light bulb or, you know, in NeoVim, you just go like blink on your keyboard. It'll open up a thing and it'll say add module doc false. So you can click it and it'll put it in there for you. My issue with, with module doc false is that it also disables like autocomplete for, for that, that whole module. So there, even if you have public functions in there, it won't autofill it anymore. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So, okay. But I, I have an issue. I have an issue with Credo. I love issue. I love Credo, sorry. I I, I kind of love issues too. <laughs> My perspective on these kinds of tools is that if you're going to complain about it, you should fix it for me. Credo doesn't do that. And so there's this other tool that's been coming about from Adobe called the Elixir Styler, right? or it's just Styler, I think, but it's for Elixir. And this one has that different kind of perspective of, well, if I'm going to complain about it, I'll I'll fix it for you as well. And I think it's taking some inspiration from Credo, like the Credo checks, right? And it's kind of maybe a subset and I'm sure it'll diverge, you know, at some point if it hasn't already, but I've noticed that you've done some, some contributions to Styler. I want it to act more like mixed format Mm -hmm. and, and have like, in a, in a perfect world, have the CI pipeline actually commit the fixes for me, but I'm, I'm not that edgy. (laughs) All the complaints of mixed format or, or the complaints of Styler, like they have a way to fix it just like mixed format does. It's so easy. I don't have to worry about silly conversations around this, this kind of stuff and get it going. Do you have some plans on like getting Styler to be having its own like persistent daemon process like you have here for like credos or some some plans in, in, in there? Is there a way I can help? I can't remember if I've actually contributed to Styler, but I did find a bug and then it turns out it wasn't really a bug. But so, yes, one of the authors of Styler is my good friend, Greg Mefford, and it definitely looks at it mostly is like for these credo rules we are going to like fix them and then you can turn them off in Credo. There's a couple other things and Greg and I used to work together at a couple different places. And at one of the last places there was, I've just noticed and a lot of times it's like you might have, you know, a function definition that has a lot of pattern matching in it, right? Naturally, the code formatter will put each parameter in the function definition kind of on its own line. And then what happens is someone comes along and they copy paste it and they're like, well, it actually takes different things and they delete all the pattern matching and then you have a function definition that's like def foo parenthesis new line something small new line something small some new line something <laughs> small like it spans like five lines and it really could just be on all one line but the formatter doesn't really doesn't remove new lines for you so uh yeah saying it again that may have been one of the the genesis for <laughs> some of the styler stuff but they they will pull it all up onto one line which is one kind of cool thing that that it does but so back to what your actual question was, I was telling Greg, I was like, oh, I'll make you an LSP for this. But then they did the Galaxy Brain move of it's actually just a formatter plugin. 
Oh. Just like the Surface Formatter plugin or the Heeks one. Oh, snap. That's easy. Yep. So then it just works out of the box and and it like also just like Elixir LS will, because you can format through the LSP, it will use the formatter plugins, right? It just runs mixed format. So it'll just, there you go. Gosh. Yeah, that's easy. All right, let's do a quick rundown then, because I, I know that you and I are, are NeoVim users, but you, you mentioned Elixir tools, uh, an organization for a lot of these kinds of glue works. Okay, so let's, what about Emacs? Is he, Emacs getting any love there? Yeah, so I have one person that is very interested. Like they saw create a language server and they were trying to get it hooked up. I fixed a bug. I think they've been a little busy since, but I, in the whole Elixir tools family of editor plugins, I hope to either have a Elixir tools dot editor for all of them or to do the best I can to help the tools I'm making work in those editors. So that person who is talking to me about create a language server, they maintain a, I'm not a super big Emacs guy, but they call them like modes. So there's like Elixir mode. And then the newest version of Emacs has tree sitter in it. So he maintains, this person maintains uh, Emacs tree sitter mode. It's, it's going to be a whole thing, right? So, and I, <laughs> and I'm obviously not like, I'm not like the biggest super polymath, but that my goal is like the, the purpose of Elixir tools is to make Elixir have the best editor and development tooling. So currently we have the NeoVim plugin and I have a VS Code plugin. So there's also Elixir tools dot VS Code. You can use that alongside the existing Elixir LS extension. There was no need to just like completely pull everything from the existing plugin to this new plugin because they can work together. So that'll start create a language server. And if you're not using the other one, it'll do uh, syntax highlighting for you. But yeah, the two bigger ones that I have not tackled really are Emacs and Sublime. I think I'm going to have the skills to make a Elixir tools dot sublime kind of work. I'm juggling so many things right now. So I'm I'm trying to push this forward as best as I can. And kind of the purpose around the, the whole org is if there's someone who wants to join and be a strongly committed member of owning a sublime plugin like that would be a dream come true or even a VS Code plugin. Like I, 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 I've been using it a little more to, you know, get this plugin working, this extension working for it. But that's, that's kind of like one thing I actually did purposely of, because, you know, when you start in those open source projects, sometimes there's a, there's a little bit of an ego type, like attachment, not even ego, but just like attachment sort of thing to your projects. And when you pull them into an org, it kind of removes your name from it. So like there, there's a bit of that. So like I, I kind of struggled with that, but I just knew in the long run, obviously none of this is about me. It's about everyone else. And pulling it into an org will just allow... Hopefully be more more accepting of community contributions, right? Yes, and can add add people in there and help people feel like they're part of the community and contributing to it. And I think it will just... Lots of other places in the Elixir community do this. So that's nothing new. But that was kind of like the whole thing of like making it its own org and whatever is to hopefully draw people in if they want to. Like, I'm going to do my best to push it forward, but having someone like own it and be a rock star at it is that would be the ultimate achievement. 
Yeah, I I noticed on the Twitch stream of of Jose that he's using Sublime Text, so uh, maybe maybe there's a, a possibility there. Oh baby, yeah. <laughs> I highly doubt that. I think I saw him and Voitech Mock. I think is how you say his name. Yeah, they were both tweeting about. <laughs> They would be using like Notepad if they could. Like, <laughs> so, no, none of those tools. Yeah, yeah just yeah, didn't want to use anything. I've met so. one person that didn't even have highlighting. Like it was just black, <laughs> white text on black uh, background. Yeah, you mean black text on white background? And there were probably like a thousand X developer too. <laughs> yeah, they, they were. Uh, no, they were great. Just, I was just like, man, I don't know how I'd live. <laughs> I thought Jose exclusively text or worked in in LiveBook, and then he just like copy it into files. And... <laughs> Now we've talked about this gen LSP and this implementation of Credo. What kinds of things do you imagine people could do with this gen LSP? This, these lower level things, like it's going to help them build language servers. What kinds of things do you want to see or have it in mind? Or like, is this the kind of thing where you think Elixir LS could be re-implemented on this and, or uh, create an alternate Elixir official one? Like what's the big vision here? I saw a next LS project when I was snooping around in your mm -hmm. org. So mm -hmm. I think I see where this is going. Mm -hmm. With regard to Elixir tools moving forward, my plant currently it's just an empty repo, but my ultimate goal is to, I'm going to, now that I've got conferences and work trips and stuff kind of like finished up and now that everything's primed, I'm going to get started on what is probably for now code name next ls and it's going to be an elixir language server built on gen lsp and and this is all you know none of this exists yet so things are subject to change but uh my and you'll probably laugh when i get to, when i get to say this my goal is to make it very pluggable or extension sort of based so i hope to make it so all the elixir intelligence is kind of built into a next ls Elixir extension. And then we can also have an Erlang extension, which can probably reuse a lot of the stuff from there's an Erlang LS language server. And then this is where I think you're going to laugh. Ultimately, I would have a Credo extension <laughs> and it would do the Credo stuff. And then you wouldn't need to use Credo language server anymore. And then also Phoenix extension, Ecto extension, Absinthe extension, or I work at SimpleBet, a SimpleBet extension. If you have very specific just stuff, I can't even think of what it would be at this point. But so hopefully this extension architecture will make it super easy for one iteration because kind of the same thing of like, I wanted to isolate the development of the like boilerplate, you know, infrastructure code from the actual Elixir intelligence code, but then also isolating because there is still somewhat like, you know, of a glue between the next LS and the Elixir smarts or the Erlang smarts. And then also I'll probably have the Credo extension kind of like built in or the Ecto one, like projects that I, like I might imagine don't want to have that stuff living in their code base or like just even for now, I want to fast iterate on it and kind of be the owner of it. But in the long run, Ecto could have the Ecto Next LS extension living inside that code base. So when Next LS boots up their app, it will do like a discovery, like a, an extension discovery search and find all the Next LS extensions for all your dependencies. And then they just automatically hooked up. 
yeah, I mean, like I said, none of this exists yet, but <laughs> that's that's kind of my vision. Yeah. That's your call to contributors and people <laughs> to get involved with the vision. Well, Mitch, we are about out of time, but I promised that I wanted to come back and talk about Temple. So uh, maybe you can give us like a quick little update on where things are with that project. It's been a year since we've talked. Just micro recap. Temple is a Elixir DSL for writing HTML and SVG as sort of a alternative to just manually writing HTML or using Heeks or using Surface. There's been a lot of changes since I've written a couple of blog posts on some of the stuff, so you can link that in there. But the biggest change now is that as Surface and Heeks has kind of innovated on this whole component system, it's not official, but is there's somewhat of an interface for it. So now Temple is completely make up a term, but like component compliant with the same concept model as Heeks and Surface. So if you are making an app and you're using Temple, like this is very actually very useful. So like in the latest versions of LiveView, they have a core components file in the generated code and it has like a form and a button, I think like some other like little components. Modal too, yeah. In the beginning, before I had this all aligned in my own app, I had a bunch of wrappers and it wasn't like super ergonomic or anything. But now you can just straight up use Heeks components straight from Temple and vice versa. So if you're a lot like coming out now, there's I think like uh, I'm forgetting the names like Phoenix Storybook or not that. Oh, no, no. It's uh, the pedal component library, I think. Like if you're in a Temple app, you can pull in a component library that's all built in Heeks. Or if you are in a normal, let's say vanilla, it's funny to say vanilla because it's, you know, layers and layers and layers and layers. But if you're in a stock Phoenix Live View app that's using Heeks everywhere, and I happen to have written a bunch of amazing Temple components, you can just add that as a dep and just use it as if it, they were Heeks components. They all follow the same interface and they all work and they all compile to the same output Elixir code. That's That's the biggest update. I don't know how you do it, that you have all these projects and then take on new projects. I guess you mentioned you don't have any kids, so maybe that's, yeah. that's the secret. <laughs> I, I think that there is definitely uh, an aspect of it to it there. A lot, of, a lot of late nights, too. So, Well, there's two of you. There's Mitch and there's Mach. Yep. Actually, yeah, that, my, my little uh, Twitter, my little sassy Twitter bio used to be uh, Mitch by day, Mach by night. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, Mitch, this has been really fun. And I, I really, I feel like I have a much better understanding of what it is you're trying to do with the Elixir Tools org and Gen LSP and what that can possibly mean for things like a Credo language server and maybe even, you know, a future for language servers with Elixir and, and other things. If people want to get in touch with you, maybe they want to get involved with some of these ideas or maybe they just want to follow your progress. Where should they go to do that? Yeah, so I'm everywhere. I like live in the Elixir Vim Slack channel, but just to kind of make this, like I was saying with the whole org and everything. So I have my own discord, Elixir tools, discord. So I believe if you go to the Elixir tools, GitHub page, there should be an invite to join that. So you can join there. I'm in there. You can email me Twitter. If you want to follow the updates, follow my blog, follow me on Twitter, follow me on GitHub. If you're as passionate about this stuff as me and you just aren't wasting your whole life on it, like I am and you'd like to contribute, I have my GitHub sponsors open. So feel free to, you know, 
throw a couple bucks there. I've got Elixir Tool stickers. I can uh, mail you one if you send if you're willing to send me your address. <laughs> Let's not have Mitch spend more than three hours a day on his NeoVim config. We need to spread that around. <laughs> At least everybody gets to spend an hour a day on their NeoVim config. Make it better for everyone. Well, thanks, Mitch. Best of luck. And I really do look forward to seeing the developments as things go on with this. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.